Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best founders and investors to help you start and scale your business from zero or one million to one trillion. As you see, I'm improving my pitch because I'm covering more the spectrum from starting up to scaling up. And because I think that starting up is very important uh, to the to discipline that we need to know in order to be able to scale up uh, successfully. And we have been covering founders and investors in different stages um, in the in the VC industry. Today, I have a very special guest after covering Latin America for such a long time, and we have been covering a lot Brazil, and last time that we covered the Spanish-speaking uh, side of, of LATAM, we, we had Arturo from uh, Sofia, very well known, and also the general partner, Stefan, of uh, Latin Leap. So it's it's with great pleasure that I introduce uh, Maite, the co-founder at Truora. Uh, Maite, welcome to the show. Mike, thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. My pleasure. And uh, yeah, let's get to know more uh, about you. Uh, you definitely are doing great things in the in the Spanish-speaking region and and in in Mexico and and Colombia, and. Uh, so who, who is Mate and, and let us know also more about Truora. Sure. So uh, quick intro, I'm Maite, as you said, I'm Mexican, I'm 30 years old, and I currently run product in Trora. So I'm head of product, CPO, uh, whatever it is. And Trora mm -hmm. is a Latin startup uh, that we've been running for four years, a little bit more by now. We're completely B2B and SaaS, and we do... SaaS technologies that help businesses connect with their end users, either by authenticating them or just helping them be active users and sort of re-engaging in everything they require for their business. So we work with many startups in LATAM, but also many traditional businesses such as banks uh, and retailers. So it's an interesting space to be in. Uh, we began four years ago. And mm -hmm. on my end, my background is non-tech. So I studied economics here in Mexico at ITAM. And then wow. I jumped into consulting and then finally jumped into Tror. Got it. Amazing. And that's great that you come into, into product without that uh, tech uh, background. But, but definitely product is a very uh, complex and a new, very new discipline in, in, in a lot of ecosystems. Uh, and what are your thoughts on in terms of the evolution of uh, the understanding of the product discipline and, and the, the amount of people that we have available in the ecosystem. So how is it going in, in Mexico? How common it is to find product managers when, when you started? Oof. So it's definitely true that it's not something we're used to in ecosystems uh, such as Mexico. And I would probably say most of LATAM that we're sort of starting to have more and more entrepreneurs. Uh, product is this role where you mix strategy with execution, with tech, with a little bit of everything. And it's not something any of us go to school for. So definitely when we began Trora four years ago, and I see it even today, it's really hard to find product managers. It's mostly a career switch. And we're definitely years behind the US or Brazil. Uh, and this is definitely mostly because uh, you guys in your ecosystems, they've been running for a longer while now. So Silicon Valley, uh, Brazil for LATAM. Uh, these are ecosystems that have had more startups uh, for a longer period of time, which means that all of the skills required, whether it's product or UX or whatnot, 
there's more people that are now capable of doing it. And I think on Mexico and then uh, Trora, we leave these atones. We have to train people that come from other uh, careers or other jobs and work styles to train into product. And it's definitely fun. And I think it's, I love it as a job, but it's not something that you find a unique profile for. So I've hired bankers to be product managers, but also uh, bioscientists and then architects and then mathematicians. I mean, there's civil engineers, there's a little bit of everything and anything. And it's just because uh, none of us went to school for that. So it's fun. Uh, and, and definitely it's, 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 it's not an easy role because you need to understand the business. You need to understand the product. You need to be able to communicate with tech people. Um, so you, you need to be kind of a translator and, uh, and in, in between teams and at a certain time of a, of a lot of business uh, intuition, business acumen, business sense. So it, it's it's not an easy role to train people <laughs> for, right? That it's something that you keep learning and learning and you you get yeah. to and you have a passion for that. It's definitely true. And I would say it's a role you never stop learning and none of us do it the same. I have, Trotter right now has, I think, 11 product managers and every one of right. them has a different sort of core skills. And it's, as you mentioned, I think the biggest skill of a product manager for me, like, the the one we almost have it's you need to be able to make decisions you need to be a good decision maker because as you said you're sort of the in-between between different teams so you're the in-between between business and tech and sales and customers and the future of the company but the present of the company right. as well so it has to be a person that regardless if they're more tech oriented or more marketing oriented for example they have to be really comfortable making uh decisions with the amount of information they have, which sometimes is not so much. Right. And also to cover just a specific part of the product or just think about the whole oh, yeah. uh, Oof, it's... roadmap. Uh, <laughs> and be, again, Prioritizing able... and roadmaps are, are the fun part of the job, but it's it, it, it's hard. It's hard to see like where you have to be focusing and how much you should have on your plate or not. Right. And um, of course, there is always this discussion uh, that I know that you you like a lot so that we always have in SaaS about uh, understanding how to handle. And you, you mentioned that you have kind of the SMB or even the startup markets on your personas and also the enterprise clients. And especially at early stages, it's very difficult to resist to the temptation to do everything that an enterprise customer that is so big in our portfolio of customers and represents an, uh, an important ARR or MRR. Uh, and we need to make them happy. Uh, but at the same time, we don't want to create a Frankenstein uh, out, out of the product, right? Oh, that's definitely one of the biggest struggles. Like how much do you listen to these huge enterprise customers uh, without building specifically for them? It's something uh, I've done a lot and I'm sure that I've done a ton of mistakes along the way, but we're, we're constantly up to that challenge, especially in B2B. I think uh, when you're doing a B2B, a B2C product, yeah. you can sort of think on the masses. So how many people are, are using this feature? How many people are responding? When it's B2B, it's a right. little bit harder because fewer people, uh, if it's the right people, may just mean that much more amount of revenue. So... Yeah, as you said, it's it's not always easy. And even looking into, at the same time, one of the advantages of, B2, of B2B is really you are able to nail into an ICP and keeping adding niche after niche and, and having um, 
little bit more clear feedback. But at the same time, those customers represent such an important share uh, of the revenue of the company that that's when it becomes difficult to prioritize because should we prioritize for the future growth or for the present growth? Because if we are not able also to show traction and, and revenue numbers, we'll not be able to raise uh, the next round. So, but at the same time, we might be killing the company some quarters ahead of time uh, because we are prioritizing the wrong things and we are going just for revenue and, and not for the, let's say the structure or the purpose or the mission or the vision of the company and, and what we, what we want to build, which is always difficult to know clearly what it is, right? So it seems yeah, easy what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, I, I, like you're talking, I'm like, you're preaching to the choir. I definitely like, that's the exact situation, right? We we'll think we have a vision of where we're going towards, but then you have huge customers that want something that maybe is a bit different. And then you have to actually be super strict if you have more customers that are going to be able to use it or if you're becoming a software factory for uh, this big revenue customer. So it's definitely struggle and it's not always clear. Like there's decisions that seem obvious and there's others that not so much and it's it's hard. And kind of going into, should we go into a long sales cycle, uh, which will create more pressure again in, in the short term. <laughs> But at the same time, if we, if we count the number of customers that we need to get into the 10 million ARR or 5 million ARR or even 100 million ARR, the, the kind of the big dream uh, of the future. But then at the same time, we might be able to land smaller customers quicker, but we need to have a lot of them in order to be able to, to get into $10 million uh, ARR, right? So those kind of of decisions and and again it's not only about revenue but at the end of the day the vc you game, need it but you need the, it, the VC game needs revenue. <laughs> i mean yeah and i think that's the hardest part and especially when you're building something on vision so when you're building something for the long term that's not bringing short-term revenue that's the hardest because you may get it wrong or you may hit the jackpot uh but as short term you definitely need that revenue for that next month for the next investor meeting so it is definitely a, a weird game and i think that this is a great point that you just brought uh that i like to to speak a lot about it when i especially in in, in SaaS, but in in any startup in any scale up it's working not only in the short term but also in in the midterm so especially in the enterprise it, it's it's a game that it takes time uh to really gain momentum so if you if you are only starting enterprise when we need enterprise revenue, it will be too late, right? So uh, so you you need to start developing those relationships uh, ahead of time, those pilots, etc., um, to to really get to a moment where they will become um, big accounts when when you need them for for the revenue metrics. Right. No, it's. The bigger revenue metrics are definitely the ones that uh, we all try to push. Uh, in Trora, it's really funny and I would say fun as well. Mm -hmm. uh, whenever we have sort of really, really big revenue decisions, we do bring in the CEO and the CTO, who are the other two co-founders, uh, into the conversation. And I would say if it's a super, super big thing, we try to do it. But if not, they definitely try to bow to product just because in theory, we are talking to more customers and more sales and so on. Uh, but when you need to do some sort of pivot or change, that has to be a company decision regardless of the customers. And that's sometimes yeah. a bit harder. 
Right. And not forgetting, especially with with a company, as we were saying, with the pressure of an industry that will always judge you by by the revenue you get, not missing the the important sustainable product metrics that we need. So the NPS uh, of of the different features of the of the experience of or the journey of of the customer. Uh, really being focused on adding value to to the customer and and being able to solve pains uh, that the customer values and that are is willing to to pay for. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you I were reading my mind. It's not that the, they have the, the problem; is that they want to pay for the problem. It's definitely an issue. Exactly. And I think even if we're B two B, definitely everything is user centric, right? So uh, I think the biggest challenge maybe when you're B2B is you have the end customer. So the customer of the business you're serving and then you have the business and they have different needs. Uh, You you have to sort of think on both and sort of play around on the roadmap at which point, which one is more important. But at the end of the day, I think it's always true that if you're not helping solve the issue that the business is like the problem the business is willing to pay for regardless if the customer is super happy with your solution or vice versa uh, you are not doing uh, the right job so I think keeping in mind always the problem you're sort of aiming to solve for the company even if that mutates and changes over time that has to be sort of the north star of what you're doing and it, I, I mean in Thorin I'm sure almost every program manager in the world we plan to improvise. So we do the roadmap, we plan, we think the strategy through, we sit down and sort of bring everyone forward on what the next strategy for the next cycle is going to be. But then things happen. <laughs> uh, customers change. Uh, the market is uh, constantly changing and then we improvise and we switch the roadmap uh, midweek, mid anything. And I think on the startup level, that's fine. Uh, bigger companies may have a sort of tougher issue with that. Right. Uh, something important that um, it's it's in my mind as we speak about this is definitely when we are trying to implement uh, OKRs and making the vision more clear for everyone in the company, there are some people that would complain that we are too revenue uh, or me- revenue oriented in all our decisions right. and people don't relate so much. First, how my work would impact those revenue metrics. And second, it is not exciting me as a as a member of the team um, to to work for this company. So, as a founder, it's it's super difficult. How do we balance? What are kind of the KPIs that we need in order to build a sustainable business, and and especially a business that is um, that fits uh, a VC mentality um, to be able also to produce results that investors would like to. To, to be part of our next round and to stay uh, with the company for for the long term, but always, always being being able to to serve the customer and the people that are serving the customer, kind of the two <laughs> sides of the marketplace that any startup and scale up needs to take care of. And if we are able to do that, usually we are able to produce the results that investors want. Uh, but first, we need to make people happy. Uh, both on the customer side and on the team side. So that's why it's difficult, this component of communication, giving clarity, but at the same time, not lying to people that those are the metrics that we are judged by, right? 
Oof, that's so true. And I think uh, you're right on point. Motivation for the team. It's I think it's the most important part. You're as good as a company as the team you have and as motivated as your team is. And we've all had bad days, right? So we all know when you are not motivated, you don't bring in your A game and people in their A game are just better. And that's just it. Uh, for us, we actually struggled with this uh, at some point in the life of Trora. Uh, I'm sure we still do. Communication is extremely important, but we struggled with what you said on, we were only communicating revenue as a metric and some people and some jobs sort of questioned how what they were doing was impacting this revenue. Even if as a founder that you sort of see everything that's going on, that you can sort of bring down the strategy to every single task, when you're doing one of those somehow seeming small tasks, it's hard to see the big picture. So we had to become way better at communicating how uh, sort of each and every piece of the team uh, contributed toward that goal of revenue and how they didn't. Uh, but it's not something we started with. I think we began way more simpler as a company. We were, okay, this is the revenue. Uh, we made sure all of the team was part of the customers, especially since they're big enterprises, it's sort of easier. So they're mm -hmm. part of the integration, wow. they're part of the problem, they're part of the meetings. And then as we grew, uh, we sort of tried to keep that going, but we did have to sort of bring down, we don't do OKRs. We tried once and uh, too early for us. But we do metrics and specific KPIs, at objectives right. per team. So they understand how what they're building or doing impacts eventually the revenue line, which is the one right. that they hear us talk with investors about. So that's the other thing. If you never mention how they connect, they only listen that you're talking about revenue and churn with investors. Um, well, no right. burn, but I think those are the only metrics uh, we talk with them. So, yeah. Kind of being able, right, to to have a, a communication strategy that aligns what each of the stakeholders needs to know to stay to stay motivated and excited and passionate uh, about the company, but also understanding that in terms of the communication outputs, the different stakeholders and investor, a client, and a, a team member needs different uh, information and a different perspective again it's not about lying to one or another it's just sharing information that is re relevant to each stakeholder kind of a different developer position and i what i want to know as an employee or a team member is different than i don't want to know as a shareholder or what i want to know um, as a customer and being able to adapt that message strategy to each of those stakeholders Especially when they are together. Uh, well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it, I think it's definitely a challenge. And, and it's somehow so easy sometimes to forget. I mean, as a PM, literally the job is try to communicate to, like the same thing to right. different people. So you communicate that's it differently. Like, you that's sort in, of definitely the job. There, yeah. yeah <laughs> but we're, we're many co-founders, right? So we, yeah. we always somehow miss something. And I think also investors are great at pointing this out. They're like, okay, this may be, I know, another level, like either give me more detail or give me less detail. For the team, it's a bit harder, but it's definitely, we have to switch it up. And it's not just for the team, then you're talking to customers and like, oh, how's Torah doing? And you have to have a speech that's different for customers, that's different from investors, that's different from team members. So yeah, it's, I think communication is key and we all sort of, struggle through it but it, it's the most important 
I'm investing a little bit time here because that's that's definitely one of the friction points and and especially it also happens for any co-founder and especially for the co-founder CEO that starts thinking that they should communicate what he wants to know. So he's thinking from a CEO at or from a co-founder at instead of an employee at or a customer at or an investor at. So they are sending out information that I would like to know. And sometimes this is not relevant to the people that we are talking to. It's relevant to us. That's the way we think. That's our mindset. And that's why also it's important to have a, a founding team to be able to, to have different perspectives about the same uh, reality and, and, and to align and to be able to also understand what we need to know in order to be able to be effective with the different segments of our um, stakeholders. And that's, that's a great reflection. Again, this was kind of an emerging uh, <laughs> subject on, on, on our podcast and our conversation. That's why I love to, to do it also more free flow as we are doing today. And, and thanks for that, Maitid, for, for allowing us to really have a conversation instead of having a set of topics to, to <laughs> no, discuss. No, I love it. And I think we agree on most of things. So it's, it's interesting. Amazing. And to... You have raised the 15 million US dollar Series A with with American funds. Uh, of course, we don't have uh, at this stage. Uh, we are. It is increasing, but uh, there is not so many post Series A companies in in Mexico and scale up. So again, we need more and more generations of uh, scale up founders that are able to explain how to go from zero to one and from one to ten. Uh, and um, in that sense, from from the outside, everything seems easy and and shiny, uh, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you also need to make already in in order to get to Series A a set of strategic pivots, uh, pivots, sorry, and um, and to be able to to make our decisions in order to keep growing the business. So, can you share a little bit more uh, about those? Uh, about that pivot that you need to make. <laughs> sure. So, and I think it's uh, it's a perfect connection to what we we're talking about before. Yeah. Mm, revenue is important for investors, but also sort of the plan you have going forward, right? What's the size of the market you can actually reach, and how much are your customers willing to pay for that problem that you're trying to solve? Mm -hmm. And so, Trota uh, faced this challenge last year when we were raising the Series A. Uh, before raising it, we, we realized and we knew as a company that the market for background checks, which was our initial product and sort of how we did the seed round, the market was not big enough. And this is not because background checks are not required in Latin America. I mean, we're one of the most fraudulent uh, regions in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, it's more because it's, I would say it's sort of a commodity and something uh, businesses are not willing to pay that much for. And it's also so dependent on government that the le the level of service you can grant, it's limited up to a certain point. So when you mix these two things together, uh, it brings any business to only allocate a certain amount of money to doing a background check uh, because the sort of benefit it renders, it's not that big. And so we identified that we needed to expand from that product to other products and to sort of to grow the market. So definitely sort of growing that product market fit market and time size. And we started exploring into uh, different products. We started building one that's a KYC. So for those not in 
uh, tech and banks. It's basically right. when you digitally identify that someone is who they say they are. So I mm -hmm. take a picture of your ID and a picture of yourself and I uh, cross-reference them with a few uh, AI and machine learning models on top of them uh, to make sure that none of like neither the picture nor the person is fake. And this is great. I mean, it's used in most of technologies today for digital banks, uh, e-commerce and such. So we were exploring that market, Astrora. So we were exploring sort of that market size. When we realized again that uh, the budget for that in most businesses was also not the biggest one. And this is, I think, really interesting because LATAM right now, it's, it's on a growing phase. Most of startups and most tech companies are in a growing phase. And when you're in that phase, while you definitely care about not having fraudulent people in your platform, you care more about having people in your platform. You want more users. Mm -hmm. You want more customers right. than blocking customers that may be bad. So uh, talking with our customers about this and sort of when we're building our expansion strategies, we realized that the struggle they had the most was they may have the best app in the market uh, for authenticating Maite and then giving her a credit card, but they're not getting enough users mm -hmm. to that point of their app. And uh, sort of these allowed us for an opportunity to explore a different way of doing what we were doing. So these digital onboarding and background check solutions that were all meshed together, that were in an API or an SDK so businesses could use them on their apps. We started thinking a little bit outside the box and we realized that if we help them bring those users in and help them be active users for their service, we had a better chance of a market where they had a lot of more budget for. So what this translated into was that we connected our products into WhatsApp for now. That's a messaging service in Latin that we all use all the time. Brazil right. and Mexico, I think we use it 90% uh, of the population is something crazy, a little bit more. Right the open rates are unreal. So we translate our services into that channel for communication and things, the market grew. We started to grow a lot and we saw a lot of sort of willingness from our customers. So in a nutshell, what this did was it expanded our market size because we did not just help companies filter out bad players. We helped them reach more players. So reach more users, potential clients for them on a different channel, they were able to make them uh, happy customers for their business. And then they could use Trora services along the way to keep communicating with these users. And that's sort of the pivot we did. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, it is definitely some, somehow somewhat of a pivot because we launched a new channel out of nowhere a few months before we started raising the round. And if you are not connecting sort of the pieces on, they communicate to WhatsApp with end users, so end customers, and when they offer them the credit card or the credit loan, which I think is one of the best use cases, mm -hmm. uh, you get a message, a WhatsApp message, and you're uh, a farmer somewhere in Mexico, mm -hmm. and you get a message that says, hey, like this company wants uh, to see if you're interested in getting a loan for your plot, whatever, uh, do you want to continue this conversation? So the farmers are able to continue conversation in the WhatsApp. And then we ask them for their picture and for their national ID. And we mm -hmm. authenticate them and validate them as Trora. 
But I think that sort of was the biggest change that we did. And it was mostly because we needed to increase the market size so we could increase the chances of getting more revenue in the future. Right. That, that's that's a great point. At the time, what, what was the ad count before Series A when we were pre preparing the, the fundraising uh, stage? So I would say before Series A, we were around, we were, we were already big. We were mm -hmm. around 110. 110, wow. So yeah, so we operate, a... yeah, we operate in seven countries. Uh, so since before the Series A. So sort of that's why we needed wow. Uh, the headcount, yeah. And, and after, so at the moment, what, what is the... We're 150. Wow, okay. That's a that lot, a... it's a lot. So, so just to understand also how difficult it is to do the pivot and to change direction with with the, the size of that team, because I was thinking that maybe at the time you were at 50 and it was not an easy job already. The, uh, the size is the hardest. Having a large team, it's harder than uh, many founders imagine. I mean, you always think, oh, more hands, it's easier. Doing this pivot was way harder when we had such a large team, way more people to motivate. Uh, we had some switch of team members, obviously, but it was, it's harder. There's more sentiments involved, uh, more people. It's harder. More people, it's tougher. Right. Right. And in terms of the co-founding uh, structure or the founding team, so what are your other, do you have one or two co-founders and what uh, are so the, there's, the uh, two, two more right now. And okay. it's, so Daniel is the CEO. Uh, so he takes care of mostly growth ideas. So mm -hmm. that's awesome because sometimes when you're so immersed in product as I am, it's a little bit harder to be thinking on crazy ideas that may work or may not work. So he's in right. in growth. Then we have David, who's our CTO, and he's half focused on tech and then half leading uh, our sales team. Uh, so he's wow. focused, yeah. It's, CTO it's a weird and sales, this is a, wow. It's a wow. weird combination. And then- We could stay there have... for hours just to <laughs> <Yeah>. understand why. <laughs> I, I would say, a co-founder's co job, uh, regardless of the role, is to fix the biggest company problem. Uh, we had an issue uh, doing sales, uh, so he took one for the team and did an amazing job sort of trying to turn it around. Uh, he's delegating that now, but at, at the point and at the core, he's sort of the founder that oversees that. And I'm dealing more with product and expansion. Uh, we have a fourth co-founder, but he's a tech lead and he doesn't like to be in the management team. So he's more of a silent one on that. Right. Right. It, it makes a lot of sense. There are also those co-founders that help a lot in the zero to one, but then when things become a little bit too bureaucratic, they are more <laughs> an artistic soul and they prefer to do what that's, they love instead of being in the bureaucratic conversations about exact, how do we communicate definition. this to the team, how to define the goals, how, how we'll take mm -hmm. care of this tech and so on and so on. Please let me work. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So between uh, the other three of us, we focus on sort of the managing and running things around. And we have this interesting way of working, which we call it the benevolent dictatorship. So mm -hmm. we try to have lanes so everybody can make decisions without the other one. And we each have our own areas where we're dictators. Yep. And then and I think it works. <laughs> when, when you have too many co-founders, you sort of need a system. Exactly. Because uh, again, 
any single decision first you need to be able to align the agendas of all those people uh, and and second again they they think in different ways and you need to get up into into a decision so it's important at a certain time to to give freedom to to those co-founders to to make decisions uh, and at the same time to ensure that they are all on the same page is also a, a tough exactly. job right <laughs> exactly and i think with large teams like one of the things that you should not do is exactly that like focus a lot on sort of being on the same page because every decision of the company then you become the blocker rather than yeah letting the team decide and just becoming an enabler. So we try to do that. That's sort of towards where we're going. We'll and avoiding those conversations about you should have told me about that uh, before you took the decision. I think those are really uh, blockers and, and will slow down the decision-making progress. And and again, it, it, it is more useful, those kind of thought process where we say, Look, if this if if this, if this is the potential to break the company, let's sit down and discuss. If if we can if we can change that that decision, let's decide and learn with execution. And if we conclude that we were wrong, we just change our decision and we we fix uh, the problem. So we should focus just in and it should be kind of one or two decisions a year that we really need to sit down and, and dissect and discuss a little bit more, right? Instead of just going through every single decision, the office, uh, the, the yeah, customer and bubble. We used to do it before and no, it was a terrible idea. So now I think it just runs more smoothly. Really important things should come to light or be shared and everything else. Like we trust you run it as best as you can sort of thing. Right. And kind of the, the, the challenges of pivoting uh, already at 110 people in, in seven markets. Those, those seven markets are all Spanish speaking or also Brazil? No, we do have Brazil. And Brazil as well. Okay. Brazil was one of our biggest challenges. We actually bought a company in Brazil uh, that's called Sapsang. So they do electronic signature. And that was really aligned with what we needed in our roadmap. And the team is amazing. So now we're really lucky to have sort of that Brazilian team sort of spearheading uh, Brazil as a whole. And it took us a while to realize that you definitely need a little bit more separate teams, not just because of the language, I would say culture. So really big countries uh, will we'll get their quote unquote country manager and sort of their ideation team, just because you need them in, in enterprise, you definitely need them that closer to, right. to how you do business in that country. Uh, but we do have Portuguese, and but my Portuguese is terrible, so we'll stick to English. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. And and the, the good thing is that usually Portuguese are able to to talk what we call Portunhol. So, Portunhol. So... <laughs> and, and I understand Portuguese, but it sounds terrible. It sounds like Italian. But uh, this is a, a cool thing about Toyota. We have uh, language lessons for everybody that wants them. So we have a lot of people studying Portuguese. Many of the Brazilians right. studying Spanish, uh, some randoms in between studying English. So we do try to keep it yeah. <laughs> on a communication level that works. Uh, but some people are better at some languages than others. And that's a huge advantage because that's that's definitely um, a region and, and the continent, uh, almost two continents that you that you are able to be in touch with if you if you speak 
uh, yeah. two, of, two languages, right? Uh, and, and they are not so different, let's say. They kind of have the same Latin, uh, Latin origin. Yeah, the structure is similar. So it helps. Uh, and definitely communication, especially in, in scaling up, if, especially if you think about other regions, that's Europe, that is one of the most the main pains of the European expansion is uh, you go from Portugal to Spain, you kind of face the same as in Latin America, but uh, it's a small market compared to Latin America. And then you need to go France or the UK or Germany and need to speak German or French. Uh, yeah, British. That's... Great advantage British for English. Latin America here. <laughs> yeah, I would say that Spanish, I mean, with two languages, Spanish and Portuguese, you can get that to all of the region so it is definitely an advantage sounds sounds great and um we we, we were talking a lot about this about the the short and the midterm and i was also asking you to to provide a little bit more of content uh, of context so when you were making that pivot how many people you you add in the team what was the your co-founding team uh, but doing that pivot again uh, in an emotional roller coaster of preparing fundraising, you never know if the decision is right or wrong. So, and you are doing a kind of a very important decision for the company uh, that can uh, again. But at the same time, if you stay the same, uh, you, yeah, you know you exactly. You know that probably you will not be able to raise that round, or even if you raise, you will have a hard time executing the numbers to raise the, the the B round in this case. So you were raising the A round. So you need to be clear what are the outcomes or the metrics that you need to deliver in order to raise the next round in the next uh, 18, 24 months, let's say, or even 12, 18, if we want to be more uh, aggressive. And then you need to be able to convince all the team that this is a decision to make. So in order to implement the decision, so that we are kind of two phases, right? The first having the leap of faith of making that decision with uncertainty and incomplete information. And second, being able to have the team trust us and embrace that decision and execute that decision as quickly as possible because there is no kind of in, in, in the in the indecision is kind of the death kiss, right? So exactly. we need to commit. <laughs> no, I, I love how you're understanding this, Mike. It's exactly what it happened. And I think the key word you mentioned is you need to commit. So that was the hardest. Uh, so the way we did it was we divided the team. Uh, a small group started experimenting. They were led by the CEO, experimenting different things they thought would sort of work. When they landed on this one that was helping our current customers connect with users, it started making more sense. And the more sense it made and the more customers we sat down with that sort of wanted it, we started pulling teams and pulling people from other teams uh, into sort of this pivot idea to build the MVP because we mm -hmm. did need the MVP before uh, the round. Right. And I think something that's really amazing about Trora is the team, they were all in. They trusted, they asked questions, a lot of them. Uh, <laughs> but they were all in. So that was really amazing, especially we're committed to the round. They may not have understood, as you just mentioned, that staying with the current product would have not been enough to raise a good round. So they, because 
we raised when the market was still hot. So before sort of uh, the drop yeah. on this year and everybody was closing rounds. So it becomes harder when you tell them, I don't think that what we have today, it's, it's bringing a lot of revenue. We have great customers. It's a great product, yeah. but it's just not there. Like the market, it's not there. People are, don't have that big of a willingness to pay to go to from A to B, maybe to mm-hmm. A, but from A to B, definitely not. So those conversations were tough. We were not great at them, I, I admit. Uh, we had some struggles along the way on how people felt that were sort of treating their products. It became a huge thing. Uh, but eventually, uh, we were able to sort of connect everything together and explain how the strategy was, that there was a strategy behind everything, and that we knew, like, first as founder group, we had to be super sort of comfortable with the idea of Either we try this pivot and we succeed or it fails. And it, like, if it fails, it. it's yeah. quote unquote okay. Because staying as we are, as exactly. you mentioned, it, it's a death kiss already. Like we can't stay where we are. So that's commitment A and it's a huge one. Right. <laughs> and then communicating that we are having people sort of only listen to you as we're going to die as a company. Like people tend to hear sort of the worst words that you mentioned, right? right? So. Uh, good point that's true we 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 had to sort of bring everyone in together and something that really really helped once we launched the pivot and we were able to raise a round around it we were after that we were able to get all of the team together in person to sort of refresh and rework on the strategy on why was this important why the next year we're going to be building things in a different way why the user was now different. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the customers were now different. So I think we also forget that repetition matters. Yeah. And it happens that as a founder, and if you're leading the pivot, you listen to it a thousand times. You talk to hundreds of customers, hundreds of investors. Uh, you get all the feedback loop closed. You, you're bought into the idea or yeah. not. But if you are sort of, you're fulfilling all of, you're filling on the all the gaps of questions that you may have. When you're an engineer that's working on one of the other products, they listen to you on the all hands maybe once a week, and maybe they did not join for one week. They heard something about a new channel of communication in WhatsApp and about a new idea, but they're not talking to customers. They're not talking to investors. They're not fixing uh, the issues. They're not talking to the user. They so, don't have the same context. Exactly. And for those people, I think uh, bringing them more and more context would have made everything simpler. So if anyone ever plans to do a pivot, uh, everybody needs the context. Especially in our culture that everyone's always sort of really bought in and together. We hate the idea of uh, just listen to me because I'm the founder. We don't operate that way. So we Love had it. to sort of convince them. Yeah, and- over communicating and being candid and explaining the why and going through each of the step. Uh, and again, it's, it's, I think one of the main challenges that I've seen uh, advising companies is helping sometimes the founders explain how the VC game works to everyone in the company, because the majority of, of the team members don't understand the VC game in industry. And then you start having those philosophical questions about 
look, but why don't you talk with investors and you tell them that you need uh, an extra free year window and, uh, or why don't we go um, into a, let's say a lifestyle business or, and, and stay a little bit more stable for a long time. Again, it's, it's okay to ask those questions, but again, as you said, we need to really commit that we want to go, go big or go home. And usually that decision needs to be made a little bit earlier in the history of the company. If we want right. to go bootstrapping or if we want to go more of a lifestyle and that's not right or wrong. That's just a different game. Right. And uh, that's so true. I mean, the VC game, it's not, none, none of us grew up with the VC game. Like you learn about the VC game if you're sort of on the hot chair, like as you oh, are training and yeah. bleeding. <laughs> as you're like, as you're heading towards the fire, you learn a little bit more about it. Uh, but so it's definitely unnatural for many people and you have to sort of talk through it. And as you said, there are decisions that have been made for years or for a long time, but you sort of have to re-communicate and rephrase them and re-bring them to the table. And again, understanding the maturity of the ecosystem and uh, right. uh, understanding that maybe in some ecosystems you have different generations of people that have been in VC bucket businesses and have, want, have, have uh, gone through the ups and downs of those decisions of those rounds. Because it, 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 there is always an excitement after raise the round. So, and then we need to be quick about deploying the capital and effective about deploying the capital. Then those decisions and those that deployment of capital needs to start producing outcomes that we're getting closer to the next round. If, if the outcomes are not coming, we are asking if we made the right decisions some months uh, ago and if there is anything that we can do to pivot and fix that stuff and maybe we need to have an extra runaway or kind of a bridge round to be able to have enough capacity to still change the trajectory of the company so uh, just sometimes i'm also sharing all of this also for the ones who are listening we are who are not founders and are thinking about starting their own companies uh, it's it's not to discourage you, but to, to understand, also to respect even more the position of the co-founders of the business. It, it's not an easy seat to, to be in. No, I agree. And I think we always tell the pretty tale, but it's, I think no startup story is the same as the other one. And there's always these things that happen uh, behind the scenes, between the lines, between the cool announcements on TechCrunch on the round exactly. that are, uh, sort of extremely important and super frequent. Like it's super, super frequent to hear the round ext extension, the switch of strategy, the switch of target customer. I mean, we're all sort of trying to figure it out. Yeah. And today on purpose, as you, as you see, we went more free flow in our conversation. So we not go through the typical stuff about how to build a founding team, how to fundraise, how to build a deck, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but we have kind of combined it all, all together and, and we went through some advice that we think it's it's important for kind of culture, building the company, understanding how to stay focused, uh, the product discipline, the maturity of the ecosystem, communication, the emotional roller coaster of, of being a founder. And something incredible also to highlight is to have a, a female co-founder of in a in, in, in a scale-up, which is amazing, and we want to see more and more coming. And also in the Latin region, the Mexican uh, in in Mexico. So, 
what are your thoughts about this the the diversity and and uh, more representative uh, representativeness uh, in in women or female leadership in in tech and what can be done in your opinion so i would love to see more females in tech i mean that's i think my end goal for most of the things i do and mostly because i think it's such an amazing industry uh whether it's as a founder uh which would change so many things for the world or as an engineer or as a tech salesperson for all that matters. I think tech is an industry that's breaking many social standards and paradigms and that's fun. I mean, it's, it's fun to be at the seat of the table of an industry that's inventing itself. And I think we definitely need females on that table to make sure that it's built a little a little bit more equal or a little bit more fair understanding different work-life balance circumstances that usually uh, are more gender oriented um some things that i've seen that are amazing mm -hmm. it's when you have whether it's female or diversity as a whole in your decision management teams uh or even in the product teams and i'll speak from experience you get to build a way better product because we some as humans we have this tendency of building towards the problems that we experience that we have. And when you're trying to build for somebody else, we need to understand that 50% of the population at least is female. Um, not, not everybody looks like us. Not everybody lives the same life or has the same problems. So that's when everybody says like, oh, diversity matters in a company. It's true because they're, especially in tech, they're the ones building the solutions. So yeah. if I'm building a product uh, for kids and I never tested out with kids I may not realize that they like bigger buttons and like I don't know cartoon char characters and mm -hmm. uh bright colors I have no idea but if you're building <laughs> a product for reflection. older people <laughs> for older people uh they may actually require like big bold letters uh most of them uh have sight problems so they need sort of bigger typography, large buttons, and a simpler interface because they did not grow up grow up with everything around them that's so technical. So as simple as it is to understand with age, I think it also has to happen uh, when we think of gender or other types of balances. So for me, what we should do as the world to getting more females in tech, it's allowing them that seat on the table, sort mm -hmm. of, breaking the myth that we have that working in tech means working on the basement uh wearing a hoodie and not having friends i think that's the first sort of thought when people think on tech because that's how it used to be right. and it's sort of showing how many like different jobs are in tech allowing them to be in the table and if they're founders or they're just senior people in your team, right. allowing them that space to be decision makers, to screw up and sort of help them through that imposter syndrome, maybe. Yeah. And it's something that's amazing, right? I've seen it. Uh, most of the investors, uh, the investors we chose for Thread and not all of them, we obviously had a lot into consideration how they treated me as a female founder. Like mm -hmm. we wanted it to be great uh, for Thread as a whole, but... It was important because for us, uh, having uh, equality in Florida, it's super important, right? Mm -hmm. So, and you can see it a lot on them. It's how they stop and they sort of give you pause to talk, how they take into consideration what you say the same way as 
what other co-founders say. In this case, they're male. So right. that's really important. And I think we underestimate how important as managers or leaders on a table it can be to sort of open up those spaces or sort of uh, help other females have that sort of leading voice or standing voice. And what else? I think the ecosystem is changing a lot. So that's super fun. Like I now yeah, have exactly. way more female founders that four years ago when Florida began. And that's amazing. That's honestly super, yeah, super we, amazing. We can do lists, which is a great sign. At the time we were not able to, yeah. I was just looking to your LinkedIn and uh, there is an, an article in Spanish, Mujeres Empresarias, Romper Las Bajeras para Cejar Las Brechas in Latin America. Sorry for the ones who don't, no, don't speak. It's, it's, <laughs> it's fair, but, but that's great when we are having, uh, and of course, what we all envision and what we'd love to happen is that we don't need anymore to have those lists and those articles about because uh, there is already no discussion uh, about it. Uh, it's, it's, it's a given. Uh, and at the same time, I, I like what, what is said uh, in, in, in the way that there is only bad or good decisions uh, those bad or good decisions are not making because of of a gender a race or uh, or a spirituality uh, choice it's uh, a male can do very bad decisions and uh, a female as well and uh, anyone completely right agree. So <laughs> completely agree yeah i think it's sort of opening the space and giving the chance and yeah. and as you said like it's it's great now that there's articles on their list and like sort of we're talking on the topic. I think that also helps. It's sort of shedding light that there's other females doing this. And there was an interesting stat someone shared with me, but the more female founders there are, the more sort of female-led issues that are solved. And it's something I hadn't thought of before, but it's true. Yeah. There's going to be more and more businesses that are aligned with uh, maybe some... I have no idea, gender issues that we had not realized that tech can help solve because now there's more females involved in tech. It doesn't mean that the females only build things for women. I mean, I'm building KYC for the world. I mean, nothing to do. (laughs) But I think it's interesting that we're sort of also opening our eyes to a different population, a different user that has different problems and that there's people willing to pay for that being solved and somebody's going to build it. So I think if we think about that for every minority, that's going to be really interesting how tech helps sort of solve different things along the way. I know that we're a little bit stretched on, on time and for, sorry for that, Mate. Uh, <laughs> it's my and, I and on your side, we hope that you are having fun. So we will have I a longer <laughs> uh, episode on your side. So, but we are getting into the, into the final segment of the show and we will need to leave also. I would love to pick your brain on, on the Mexican uh, ecosystem, but the best thing that we can do is bring more Mexican uh, founders into the show and we count on you uh, for that after after Sophia as well. And uh, if you would have the opportunity to meet yourself at the beginning of uh, Truora four years ago, as you said, what advice would you offer to your younger self? So I would offer my younger self I would say make more mistakes, but also build, a little, ask for more help. So I'll explain it really fast. I think at the beginning, I was really not used to or a little bit more scared of admitting that I had no idea what I was doing or asking others for help. 
it took me a few months to get comfortable of sort of writing up to a random founder and being like, hey, I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, can you explain to me what product is or what sales is or whatever? So that eventually leads into a community that's amazing. But for me, it would have been sort of try to tap into that community faster. You can build great relationships around that. And connected to that is uh, making more mistakes. I think as a founder, you're going to make so many mistakes. And if at the beginning you're more thinking on how do I iterate and test faster to be better than yesterday, rather than how do I try to find the perfect product, the perfect feed, the perfect hire, like just try to do better. I think uh, I would have saved myself a little bit of overthinking at times. <laughs> Love it. And what are you the most proud on on your journey uh, so far? Any any skills? Any moments of truth? Uh, even the pivots? That uh, anything that that comes to your mind immediately when I when I ask this? The question. most I would say it's uh, the product team we have today. Sort of that lesson of shaping people that today are amazing PMs. Uh, there were some struggles along the way, but I think we have the team we have today. Uh, thanks to those learnings and sort of putting that together and it's i think the thing i'm most proud of definitely and worst advice ever received hmm. so <laughs> many people like hmm, worst advice i guess it would be sort of all these fear people put on you when you're an entrepreneur of you shouldn't try to sell to that company because you're not ready you shouldn't try to do this because we're gonna no. fail because you're gonna be broke because you're gonna be I, I can sort of go on and on exactly. but it's all of those advices of friends that meant well but maybe had no idea about the space uh that prevented uh, me from doing certain things i think it's better to have the no or the fail than not having tried yep. and so and i think this happens to many like young entrepreneurs or current entrepreneurs that sort of fear of, i'm not going for the big customer because we're not ready yet i mean mm -hmm. go and let the customer tell you no but don't assume like what they need so i would say that's definitely been like a stopper of sorts you're your worst enemy and like i think fear in this case but it's the worst enemy i love it and um, just out of curiosity uh i'm recording in the same day the episodes with uh marcel the the co-founder and, and co-ceo of clevo uh, and with you mighty and uh, you mentioned the the same thing and that's definitely anyone that mm -hmm. is leading a business that is leading a team that is leading a product that is leading anything that is trying to build something and is asking for feedback first you can be really really overwhelmed and at the same time you can also be contagiated or uh, infected uh, by by those fears of other people so be be careful to kind of create a barrier a wall and and really be scientific about what you listen and uh, as we were saying today and, and we really even practice with this uh, podcast today uh, follow your art and your intuition uh, get a little bit of analytics but um, but at the end of the day if it doesn't feel right 
don't go in that direction if your ad is telling you to go in that direction. Follow your gut, follow your your art. Be careful with your gut, of course, but but Be follow your art. Your... <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I test that out of it. I test it, but I think follow it, and you know, test it out. Try it small. If it works, go bigger. Even better. Bigger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good points. Even better. Thank you, Mighty. And now, quickly, resources. Uh, your favorite book. So, product oriented. Uh, I would say I read more about culture. So I like uh, the Netflix one of No Rules yeah. Rules. Uh, favorite book life. I'm I'm an, I read novels. So I would say like Pride and Pretty. So nothing to do with this. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds amazing. That that's always possible. Also to bring something completely outside of business and outside Perfect. of product. Favorite movie or series? Uh, so I'm a royalty fan. So I would either say Downton Abbey or The Crown. Got it. And finally, your favorite uh, podcast? Ooh. So this changes from time to time. Yeah. Uh, I'll recommend two. Uh, the first one, I'm a huge nerd. So I like to be on top of world news. So I listen to uh -huh. the intelligence from the economists constantly. And then... For early entrepreneurs, I love Masters of Scale. I think uh -huh. it opens, like for me, it helped when I was beginning, sort of opened up my mind of so many cool stories of founders out there uh, that I really liked it. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I think it's my most source of communication, uh, but those two, I would say work. Definitely also one of my benchmarks and uh, inspiration, the masters of scale, it kind of... It's amazing. It, I think for all of us, it's it, it's yeah. that ethos and it's amazing. And what I what I always had in mind and the dream and the vision for, for this podcast was to be the masters of scale for kind of uh, zero to 10 uh, people. I love right? it. So you're, you're on the right track. Giving the stage <laughs> to the ones who are not yet the masters of scale that but are becoming uh, the masters of scale and would be in the masters of scale uh, sometime uh, ahead of I the love curve it, Mike. and <laughs> I'm hosting them now. So, uh, Maite, One step ahead. really a pleasure to have you on the show. Congrats for everything that you have made. You are always invited to come back to reflect about other topics and about your progress with Truora. All the best and, and thanks so much for, for making the time. Thanks, Mike. It was amazing. And I love uh, what ScaleUp is doing. So thanks for having me. And we'll be listening to your other episodes of different others. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> and and share feedback. We do this uh, for, for you and for all that are listening. So you are our audience and uh, we do our best to, to make this useful for all of you. Because our purpose is to make your life a little bit easier as you start and scale up your company. See you soon and keep scaling.